It's a new year, and like every year, I suspect a lot of you have resolved to get fit, stop eating junk, get more sleep, or at least be better to your body now that most of the holiday cookies are gone. These days, there are a lot of businesses that want to help with that. It's an app that actually makes you feel better. Say yes to Weight Watchers, and you could lose seven times more weight than on your own. We're going to talk about Moringa as the next hot superfood for the year ahead. And it is called True, a 30-day yoga journey. A new wave of people trying out online therapy. Drinking vinegar. Drinking vinegar, Apple cider yeah. vinegar is so popular now. Very popular. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And this week... We have a show about the industry of wellness, which means we need to start with the big picture. There is a lot of money in the wellness industry, partly because by using that very word, wellness, we mean a lot of things. So when we talk about wellness or think about it, we're not just talking about our physical health, um, but many other dimensions too. So things like social and community uh, wellness, mental, emotional, spiritual, financial. That's Katherine Johnston. She's Senior Research Fellow at the Global Wellness Institute. And according to Johnston's research, the global wellness economy was worth $3.7 trillion, yes, with a T, dollars in 2015. Yes, <laughs> it's huge and growing fast. And it's been growing faster than global GDP um, over those years. Right now, if you compare it to health expenditures, which are about $7.5 to $8 trillion globally, wellness is now about half the size of that. Can you give me a breakdown of sort of where people globally spend their money on wellness? You know, how much goes to exercise? How much goes to spiritual practices, et cetera? Uh, the largest segment is actually beauty and personal care and anti-aging. That's about $1 trillion. And then we have another, say, $1 trillion, so about another third that is split between fitness, exercise, mind-body, those types of activities, and then also eating and nutrition and weight loss. The next biggest segments then are uh, what we call preventive and personalized health and even public health. Um, that's about $500 billion. And then we have another industry about the same size, about $560 billion, that's wellness tourism. So that's incorporating wellness into how we travel. So as you can see, it's a, we, a big range of things <laughs> included. Yeah. And we only expect it to get bigger. Why do you expect it to get bigger? I mean, you look at the the big trends that are going on globally, I mean, the rise of you know the middle class around the world and people who have disposable income to spend on things like taking care of themselves. You know, of course, we're also recognizing that our medical system is completely broken. It's not working. Um, we have a huge chronic disease crisis around the world. We have aging populations and um, environmental problems. You know, we're waking up to those things. And so we see people really trying to take better care of themselves in response. I'm curious, as an economist, how you think about what seems to be a trend of of monetizing goods that we often have had in the past for free, whether it is silence or a walk in the woods. Well, you know, there's there's a business around everything, right? <laughs> so, and again, you know, I, I tend to look at this as, you know, there are always going to be consumer fads and things that people want to do. And in the terms of wellness, you know, this is a good fad. This is important. You know, we need to change the way we're living our lives. There will always be businesses and industries to capitalize on that in good and bad ways. Um, So, you know, some of the things that we may be spending money on in interests of our wellness may not be doing us much good. 
Perhaps we need to take what money we're spending now and spend it in a better way. Is there a risk that wellness becomes a premium product, you know, only for the wealthy? I would say it's going in the opposite direction. Um, You know, if you look back 10 or 20 years ago, when people thought about wellness, it was more of a premium thing. You know, maybe it was for the wealthy, slightly middle-aged or older people who could afford to go treat themselves at a spa or, you know, take a retreat vacation. That stuff is increasingly accessible to the middle class in the United States and even to, you know, people at the lower income levels. Um, You know, there are a lot of new business models that we see growing in this industry that are... um, trying to do that because, you know, as a business, if you're only appealing to a small segment of the population, your, your business growth is limited. Yeah. And so I think the growth is really going to come from that, that shift and making it accessible to, to all people. What are the trends that you're watching over, say, the next five years? I think we're going to see huge growth in sort of fitness practices and wellness practices and offerings that draw upon the past, upon historic traditions that may come from different places around the world. Maybe they come from the arts or from the natural world. Um, You know, we see that happening already, like the growth of interest in yoga or meditation. Another area of growth like that that I would see is um, bringing back some of the the nature-based and water-based traditions that have existed all around the world for centuries. And again, bringing those into the modern era. Um, So many countries all over the world, outside of the United States, have these traditions of like sauna, bathing, hammam, onsen in Japan. I mean, it's just so many different versions of this. And then one other area that I would point to, you know, real estate and bringing wellness into our daily life and our daily expenditures. And so we would see continued growth, for example, in food and eating, and that shifting toward more healthy options, and then shift in our homes, our infrastructure, our communities. And that's just a huge industry. Um, So huge potential for growth there too. And we've been talking a lot about the US, but how do we compare to other countries around the world in terms of how we approach the kind of economy of wellness? A lot of the growth and the spending in the wellness industry comes from the United States um, in terms of the last 10 to 20 years. A lot of the trends, you know, sort of led here and then filter out to other parts of the world. But at the same time, most other places in the world have a lot stronger wellness traditions in history than we do. Yeah, so, it feels like we're kind of, <laughs> you know, appropriating stuff they were already doing. We are. We are. And what's interesting is, you know, in a lot of countries, they have these traditions going back centuries. And sometimes they're actually, you know, now seen as being old fashioned. You know, that's something that your grandmother does. So perhaps, you know, you're talking about going to the hammam in the Middle East or, you know, going to the bathhouses in Japan or in China. You know, there are a lot of places that have had those forever, but they're not really used by the younger generations. And so the interesting trend that we see happening is sometimes the U.S. kind of appropriates <laughs> some of those uh, traditions, it modernizes them, you know, turns them into a newer sort of consumer industry that would be appealing to millennials and younger people. And then that stuff gets readopted throughout the rest of the world. So there's kind of a give and take there. Catherine Johnston is a senior research fellow at the Global Wellness Institute. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. And this week, we are devoting the show to wellness. So, some basics. 
Here are five things you need to know about keeping yourself fit and healthy as 2018 gets underway. This is Dr. Janai Robinson. I'm in the Department of Family Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC in Southern California. So to start us off, a two. Well, first, it is cold and flu season, so get that flu vaccine if you haven't done so. It's not too late, and it is important in terms of preventing the flu. In addition to that, good hand washing is important to prevent the spread of the flu. And if you're coughing, wear a mask or use a tissue to try to prevent spreading that cough to others. In the office, your coworkers will appreciate you if you stay home if you're sick. And again, if you are going to be in the office, using a mask or a tissue and trying to stay away from those that are healthy is recommended. So yes, wash your hands. Moving on, eat your greens. Point number two is to eat more plants. We recommend six to ten servings of fruits and vegetables a day. You can pick things you have available where you are, what's in season, what you like. Remember that frozen fruits and vegetables are fine to use as well. We do recommend whole fruits and vegetables over juice because when you juice fruits and vegetables, you lose fiber, and fiber is essential for good health. From there, keep on moving. Point number three is to move your body every day. We recommend a minimum of 30 minutes a day of cardiovascular exercise. That's anything that gets your heartbeat up. So brisk walking, going up and down stairs, dancing, running, biking, whatever you like to do, make it enjoyable. It's okay if you need to break it up into smaller amounts of 10 minutes a couple of times a day. And every bit counts. So if you can't get the full 30 minutes in, even take five or 10 minutes, it all adds up. Point four, keep calm and carry on. Point number four is to manage your stress. It's impossible for us to eliminate stress in our busy lives, but there's many techniques for managing stress. I recommend to my patients to consider regular exercise, meditation, trying to be more mindful, and remembering to laugh and to play with our families and our friends is really important and really good anecdotes to stress. And to round out our five things... Point number five is get adequate sleep. We recommend at least six to eight hours of sleep a night. And it's hard for our bodies to function optimally when we're sleep deprived. When you're sleep deprived, you have more stress hormones circulating in your body, which tempts us to be eating more poorly, making worse choices. It's also hard for us to do our regular exercise when we're not getting adequate sleep. So make sure that you're getting plenty of sleep. Wait, bonus round. At Keck School of Medicine at USC in the Department of Family Medicine, we strongly believe in the importance of having a regular primary care physician that you see. So establishing that relationship, making sure that you're getting your wellness and health maintenance issues uh, addressed, as well as having that relationship so you have a doctor who knows you, knows your values, knows your family, and is able to be an, an ally to you in terms of being able to achieve optimal health. That's it. Five, well, actually six things you need to know about keeping yourself healthy as we kick off 2018. Thanks to Dr. Jenny Robinson from the Department of Family Medicine at USC's Keck School of Medicine. And do you have five things you want to know about? Just email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org.
More wellness in a minute, but we love the numbers on our show. Can't get enough of them. So every week, Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez bring us the news by the numbers. Tony, starting with you. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 1.3 million. That's the dollar value of a bottle of vodka that was stolen from a Copenhagen bar earlier this week. The bottle itself is made of gold and silver with a diamond-covered cap and is supposedly the world's most expensive. Now, this particular bottle of Russian vodka was famous even before the heist. It appeared on the Netflix show House of Cards. 3,000. That's about how many flights were canceled on Thursday as a so-called bomb cyclone hit the East Coast. The winter storm brought freezing temperatures and intense conditions up and down the East Coast from Florida to Maine. Including record-breaking snowfall in Charleston, South Carolina. 15. That's how many years ago the popular burger chain In-N-Out added its last new menu item, lemonade. Until now, In-N-Out just put hot cocoa on its menu for a buck sixty-five. The beloved burger spot says that hot cocoa will be free for kids under 12 on rainy days. Too bad we can't share some with our freezing cold East Coast friends. West Coast, best coast. Sorry, Lizzie, back to you. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Tony. Let's stay with numbers for a second, and in this case, dollars, because people and services often go where the money is. And in terms of mental health and wellness, Congress tried to follow that principle. Ten years ago, they passed a mental health parity law, saying that insurers had to pay for treatment for mental health, say depression or addiction, just like they do for physical health, a broken foot or a skin condition. But right now, psychiatrists are less likely to take insurance than all healthcare professionals. To understand what's going on, we turn to Henry Harbin. He's a healthcare consultant and former CEO of Magellan Health Services. Welcome. Thank you. So the parity law passed 10 years ago. Do we have parity now? Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of lack of progress, a lot of noncompliance by the insurers, and in many cases, not enough enforcement by state or federal regulators. Well, let's talk about insurance and cost here. There was an article in 2014 in the Journal of the American Medical Association that found that psychiatrists are far less likely than other medical providers to take insurance. Why is that? So a lot of psychiatrists are feeling like they don't have to go in-network. They're paid less, they're micromanaged, and they're saying, well, I'll see people, but I'll see them out of network. We've seen a real shortfall in the insurance company's ability and willingness to reach out to the mental health providers, psychiatrists and others, to make sure they're in network so that people have easy access. Well, but so if you're a psychiatrist, why would you then agree to go in-network if you know you might have to take a, a lower you know, reimbursement for your services? Why not just say, eh, to heck with it, I, I'm, I'm going to not take any insurance? Well, I, I think a lot of them don't, in part because they're paid less for the same services. So a recent study that was released by the Milliman Company looked at this issue of were there differences in reimbursement rates for psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers compared to medical physicians, primary care doctors, or medical specialists. And in that, they found that in 24 states in 2015, the reimbursement lowering payment for the mental health providers versus the medical was 30 to 70 percent higher. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that go against 
the, the parody law? Yes, it does. A second study came out a few days after that, which was a government-funded study, and they looked specifically at were psychiatrists and psych nurses, for instance, versus medical doctors, where they were billing the exact same procedure code. So was the primary care doctor treating depression and was the psychiatrist treating depression? And even when they were using the same code and the treating the same mental health diagnosis, they still paid the psychiatrists and others about 20% less than the medical side. You know, we are looking at wellness in general here. And with all of this context, who can afford access and care for mental health? This issue of access to reasonably cost-effective care is happening at a time when we have an epidemic of death rates for both suicide and opiate deaths. Suicide rates are up anywhere from 15 to 20 percent over the last 10 years. The opiate death rate is like 4 to 500 percent. Both of those are getting worse. We are in the, probably the worst epidemic in the U.S. history for the outcomes of mental health and substance abuse. And yet, we have this data showing how limited the access is to the full insurance benefit that's required by law. You have 40 years in this field. What would you do to fix this? All of us, advocacy groups, provider groups, are asking is for the state insurers to begin doing audits to find out for sure, are they complying with the full aspect of the parity law? Remember that these insurance companies are acting on behalf of employers. The employers hire them. So both employers and the insurance companies are liable for compliance with the parity law. So one of the recommendations is for employers themselves to get an independent audit of their insurers' activities to make sure they are compliant with the parity law because it's the employer's workforce Mm -hmm. that are going to be suffering less, suffering greater, and not having as many mentally healthy workforce as you would expect. Henry Harbin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your interest in this story. How does insurance or cost affect your ability to get mental health care? Let us know. We're weekend at marketplace.org. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend, and it is that time of year when subscriptions to weight loss programs spike, and so do gym memberships. But the big box workout chain has got a challenger, the boutique gym. According to research by the financial services firm Stevens, in 2015, boutique gyms made up 21% of the $22.4 billion U.S. health club market. The studios feature one-on-one training and group classes, including bar, Pilates, and high-intensity interval training. Boutique studios are a hit with millennials, and one L.A.-based trainer is cashing in. My name is Gmo Foriata. I am a personal trainer, and I have a gym in the Arts District, downtown L.A., where we do boxing, circuit training, a lot of high-intensity interval training, as well as uh, yoga classes and body sculpt classes. A year ago when we started, I would say we had like maybe 10 to 15 members. And then now we're, I would say, around 110. 
we try to treat everybody here like a family. So I think that's what keeps people here, the fact that it's such a family-based atmosphere. You want to go all the way down or all the way up, mid-range. Yep, perfect. That's it. Look good. My name is Jessica Mellon, and honestly, I had never worked out in my life. I was like a late workout person. So when I met him at the other gym, he was like super easygoing. Like I was nervous at first. You know, everyone has a relationship with Jima. Like he really gets to know his clients and he's here every single day, all day from like 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. So he knows everybody. We've developed our own culture here where if somebody is not doing as well in the class, mean like they may be a little fatigued, a little tired, everybody kind of motivates and pushes each other so that the whole class kind of develops like a great synergy of working hard. My name is Jane Beck and I work out at the gym. Jima, he's amazing. Like, he gets to know you, and he knows, like, what your strengths and weaknesses are. So, like, he knows, like, oh, this is, like, hard for or easier. So he'll, like, push you or help you out. Like, even if I had to drive, like, 30 minutes, I would rather drive 30 minutes and go somewhere where I know that I'll get a really good workout because of the personalization. I will never go back to a regular gym membership. Sometimes when people don't come to the gym, they actually text me and say, hey, I'm not going to make it today. It was when I got a text message. This literally happened where a girl said, I don't know why I'm texting you like you're my job, but I just feel like I have to let you know I'm not going to make it into the gym today. So we have a few members that joined us that were previously members at Equinox, previously members at LA Fitness, previously members at 24 Hour. My name is Eduardo and I work out at the gym. After all these other gyms I've been going through, I've been two years at Planet Fitness. It's been very good. I just went with my gut and said, hey, I'm going in, just take my money and then give me the strength I need. If it's expensive, it's for a reason, and I understand why. I actually trained someone who's a manager at LA Fitness. You know, and it just goes to show like here you have access to all these facilities, but you'd rather come here for the level of attentiveness that you get. That was Jima Ofariata from the boxing and circuit training studio, The Gym, based in Los Angeles. And that piece was produced by Alyssa Dudley. booked a class at a boutique fitness studio, like personal training or spinning, yoga, CrossFit, Pilates, there is a very good chance you used my next guest software. It's called MindBody, and it's the most popular platform for wellness fitness classes. 59,000 different places use it. So how did MindBody make a business out of, well, other people's businesses? Founder and CEO Rick Stolmeyer stopped by our studios. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lizzie. It's a pleasure to be here. How'd you come up with this idea to to sort of create this software platform that now feels ubiquitous? Well, my best friend from high school, Blake Beltram, in 1998, he and I were dreaming up dot-com ideas like so many people were back then. Meanwhile, he was writing software for yoga, Pilates, and spinning studios in L.A. And I learned about this industry with him, and together we decided to build a company around it. I fell in love with these people, these amazing grassroots entrepreneurs who were leaving the safety of a job to build out their own space, sign a multi-year lease, put all of their net worth probably into a studio um, or spa, all designed to help people live healthier, happier lives. That is a very pretty answer. But come on, how did you say like, yeah, I can make a business out of yoga? Well, 
the way they operate is surprisingly complicated. Really? They have a scheduling problem. They have a staff management problem. Um, they have a CRM opportunity. They need What's to be a able CRM to, opportunity? Uh, a customer relationship management. Okay. Even a small neighborhood boutique wellness studio will have three, four, five hundred customers. The thriving ones have thousands of customers that they have to manage. They sell them these really strange passes, a one-class, five-class, ten-class pass. They sell monthly memberships. They do things like workshops and certification programs. And so there's a lot of complexity in how they operate. And what we saw was a lot of complexity and no system available to help them. They, hmm. The only software relevant at the time was health club software, and that's, that's a breakage model. It says, I'm going to sign you up for a membership and hope you don't come too often because we don't have enough Stairmasters and ellipticals. But if you're going to a Pilates or gyro class like you do, or you're going to a spinning class or yoga or a bar class or a CrossFit workout, um, that's consumption economics. They only make money when you show up. When you think about the past couple of years, you guys went public. We did in 2015. You, you had a bumpy year after that. We did. Yeah, well, there were two things that were going on there. First of all, the market, it kind of soured against these fast-growth tech companies that were burning a lot of cash. And we had our foot firmly on the gas of both growth um, and developing additional software. A lot of things that are on the market today, the new MindBody app, uh, the dynamic pricing system, uh, the introductory offer system that's built into the app, the fact that the software on both the business and consumer side works on mobile, every mobile device as well as on the web, all of that was being built. And so when we were public, we had a pretty hefty cash burn going on, and the market was not thrilled with that. The second thing was this perception that small businesses are tough to scale a, a company on, they're tough to bet on. And I think many companies have proven that wrong today, not just us, but you know, Shopify and uh, Wix, for example, are, are just great cloud-based software companies built on small business. We are looking at this sort of expansion of wellness as a, a phenomenon, but also a business. Why do you think it is so popular right now? I think there's a couple of reasons. First and foremost, of course, we have a massive health crisis um, in our country and, frankly, in every developed country in the world. Um, in many ways, we've never been healthier in terms of our ability to live longer. I mean, modern medicine yeah, yeah. is a miracle. But in other ways, we've never been less healthy. Uh, obesity, um, adult-onset diabetes, cardiovascular disease are just rampant. Um, what's interesting to us is that the affluent professionals get it. And perhaps those folks, we, are, are healthier than we've ever been, much healthier than our parents' and grandparents' generation because we really take the time to care for ourselves. And well, do you mean get it or can afford it? Can afford it. You see, and there you go. There's this, there's this widening chasm in so many ways in our society, and one of them is in wellness. And if you look at the folks who don't have the pocketbook to pay two or $300 a month for these experiences, their health and wellness, as in aggregate, has never been worse. Does that weigh on you as a CEO? Because, you know, I, I look at the list of services or companies that I can go to on MindBody, and a lot of them are $35 a class. That's a lot of money. It is. Do you think about that? Do you think uh, I'm making inequality worse with my business? I am deeply concerned about it, and we as a company are deeply concerned about it because our purpose isn't to connect the affluent world to wellness. Our purpose is to connect the entire world to wellness. And so coming up with ways in which – these businesses and practitioners can deliver their services in, in a way that drops the price point for those who can't afford the full rack rate is one of our most important priorities. 
So this dynamic pricing system we just released. Think about this. There's 4.8 million class and appointment sessions a day offered on the MindBody platform. Less than half of them are filled. So every day, there's more than 2.5 million sessions that nobody benefited from. Mm. And in most of those cases, the business could have delivered those sessions to somebody with very little incremental cost of goods sold. So in other words, if they would just fill those last few seats. Yeah, but who takes the loss if they fill that seat for eight bucks? There is no loss. I mean, the point is that if you're like, let's take a spinning class. Yeah. Okay. And you got 25 bikes in the room and you filled 20 of them. What does it cost you to put five more people in there? That's the same principle as filling the last seats on the airplane. Dynamic pricing is everywhere in our, in our world today. We take it for granted in travel and leisure, sporting activities. Um, it hasn't hit this market yet until now because they didn't have the technology. And what's the response from, you know, the spinning studio down the street? So the first response is they want to know for sure that this isn't going to create a race to the bottom because they have pattern recognition. They've seen some stories before, like, for example, Groupon several years ago. Right. When Groupon hit the, the fitness space, it was harmful to many of these businesses. It caused this sort of degradation of their perceived value. There's auto models like ClassPass. Mm-hmm. ClassPass has had significant success in engaging more consumers. By They're a technology partner of ours. Um, but they've had to keep iterating the model to try to get it right because the studio has to Translate agree. that to raising their prices. Right. Because ninety, it, what was happening was you could buy a $99 class pass in New York City, um, which you could go to multiple studios unlimited. Those studios can't survive if that's the, the basic rate that they're offering. So let's take it back to the basics here. Um, if you are on a limited budget and you're time flexible or you're willing to commit in advance, you can get a class significantly cheaper with dynamic pricing. That's a win for the studio because they're able to fill those last-minute spots. And on the other end, if they get commitment to the classes – then they know they can actually hold the class. They'll cancel the class in many cases if they don't get bookings. And then if you're somebody who's, who's got the ability to pay and you absolutely positively want that best spinning class at 5.30 tonight, there's an increased chance there'll be a spot available for you, but you're going to pay a little premium. Rick Stolmeyer, CEO of MindBody Online, thank you very much. You're welcome. And if you're thinking of taking up yoga in the new year, head over to Marketplace.org to read our colleague Yana Kasparkevich's piece about the cost of becoming a yogi. wellness can mean so many things nowadays. But at a really basic level, it starts with what we eat. And access to healthy food in this country is unequal, often depending on where you live. You've probably heard the term food desert. The government uses slightly different phrasing, but says that 39 million Americans live in an area with low access, their term, to a supermarket or large grocery store. And often that can particularly impact low-income residents. So we called up Lauren Onellis, the founder and director of the Food Empowerment Project, which studies food deserts and also works to eradicate them. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You did a big study in Santa Clara County. Um, what did you look for and what did you find? 
What we did in Santa Clara County was, you know, this is a community where Cesar Chavez got his organizing start, and it was known as the Valley of Heart's Delight because of all the orchards that were everywhere. But more recently, it's known as the Silicon Valley. So we gathered up some of our volunteers and set out to do an assessment of the entire county, comparing high-income communities and low-income communities on the availability of healthy foods. And we did this by going and physically surveying locations, not restaurants or fast food, but grocery stores, convenience stores, liquor stores, on what types of foods, fresh produce, you know, vegetables, fruits, um, dairy alternatives, meat alternatives that the community actually had access to. And um, we made the comparison from the high-income communities and low-income communities and released our report, um, which had uh, some interesting findings. Tell me about this. One of the things that we found out was that, I guess, no surprise to many people, was that high-end communities had way more access to fresh produce than communities of color and low-income communities had. In fact, the high-income areas had 14 times more access to even frozen vegetables. Wow. So in communities of color and low-income communities, what you would typically find in the freezer section would be uh, frozen pizzas or ice cream, not necessarily frozen vegetables. Uh, We also found that in a lot of these communities, you had um, produce that may be available at at the convenience store at the register, but they didn't have prices on them. So that meant that whoever was behind the counter would determine how much, say, a banana would cost, and it might change depending on who you were. This type of system also puts people who don't speak English at an incredible disadvantage to others. Uh, We also found that some of the smaller, what I would consider convenience stores or liquor stores, were actually being labeled as proper grocery stores and supermarkets, even though they weren't, they clearly weren't that at all. Did did you get a sense from any of these, you know, store owners or the folks who who had, say, frozen pizza in, in the freezer section and not vegetables, why that was the case? Why they stocked those items and not something healthier? Some didn't really care, but there were a lot who were concerned about this and knew it was an issue, but weren't quite sure how to get the produce without it going bad, didn't know how to get uh, large quantities to where the prices wouldn't be outrageous. Um, So some were trying to do their best, but you definitely had some who didn't even want us to survey their locations. (laughs) You also noted the county's diabetes rates. Uh, You looked at at chronic illnesses. there. Were, what effects did, did you see in terms of being in some of these food desert areas have on residents' wellness? Well, I think, you know, science and, and nutritionists told us that diets higher in fruits and vegetables are better for you. And in the state of California, um, we you know, we did our work in Northern California. You know, you have high rates of diabetes and other dietary diseases. The communities who are lacking healthy foods, they're suffering the health consequences of that. Well, what are some things do you think people listening to this interview might not realize? I, I know you mentioned to uh, my producer the, the idea of being time poor, which I think might be something that people in higher income communities are not thinking about. I think that a lot of times when people hear about issues like high rates of diabetes or other problems, they immediately think that these people, quote unquote, um, don't want to eat healthy without acknowledging that many of these people desperately want to eat more fresh produce. It's simply not available to them, especially immigrants 
to this country actually ate healthier in the communities that they came from because they were able to grow their own food. So sometimes it's like, oh, well, you could buy, you know, you can go in bulk and buy things really cheap. But one, not a lot of these locations, these grocery stores have bulk sections. And two, a lot of people are exactly like time poor and cash poor, meaning that they're working several jobs to make ends meet. And they don't have a lot of time to sit and cook a meal from scratch. So it is those that are more convenient foods are going to be easier for them when they're trying to make ends meet. They're trying to keep a roof over their head while they work two to three jobs that aren't paying them very much. Tell me about the the recommendations you make, because I know you guys have talked with, you know, policymakers and, and business leaders. What do you say to them in terms of how they can make some changes? One thing is that to make sure that bus lines, um, for a lot of these people don't have cars, and so they're reliant upon buses in order to get to the, from home to the grocery store or from work. So to try and figure out ways to make the bus lines in locations where they actually are going from where communities of color and low-income community people are living to the grocery stores without them having to take multiple buses. They can also ensure that there's no restrictions or limitations on how many grocery bags that people can bring on on the buses. We also really strongly feel that more needs to be done to help people grow their own food. This is something that overwhelmingly we found in focus groups is that people wanted to grow their own food. Not everybody has access to land, but if communities and city officials were able to provide land available for people to grow their own food, that's a win-win for everybody. Also, we feel that... um, Worker-owned cooperatives are a big part of a solution for the issue where the people who are working there are from the community and the profits from those cooperatives stay in the community. Lauren Ornelas, founder and director of the Food Empowerment Project, thank you so much. Thank you very much. The world of wellness is incredibly broad. It's also trendy. Seriously, just search the hashtag wellness on Instagram. Which leads me to an interview we did a little over a year ago with Amanda Chantal Bacon. She's a wellness entrepreneur and founder of the company Moon Juice. They have three locations in L.A. selling specially blended juices and milks and also deals with high-end department stores and Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop to sell herbal dusts. And yes, Bacon has taken her share of knocks from the internet for a slightly new-age vibe, but she's a force in the wellness world. When I visited in late 2016, I had to taste a drink. Let's try deep chocolate with which 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 dust? The spirit Spirit. Okay, deep chocolate with spirit dust. Okay, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. It was sort of like a cinnamony chocolate milk. Bacon had just published a cookbook, and I asked her then how business was going. Business is pretty great. Why the cookbook? Um, you know, <laughs> so a lot of people say, why the cookbook? And what a terrible idea to do the cookbook because you've just given away all of your recipes. True. That was actually the point. The cookbook is really because, you know, the mission of Moon Juice isn't how can I make a whole bunch of money and retire and like move to Kauai and, you know, play tennis or swim with the dolphins. The whole point that I opened Moon Juice was to invite, seduce, and excite 
massive amounts of people into doing this. The mission has always been, let's just turn you on to this stuff. You don't have to buy it from me. You don't ever have to come to Moon Juice. This is a business. Yeah, and we have to keep the lights on. And I'm also, I have business instincts, and I really enjoy that part of the game. But at the heart of it, I'm super passionate about bringing this and bringing it to as many people as possible. Is this bringing it to as many people as possible if the, you know, the, the drink that I had cost $14? Well, that's where I'm at today. And so I think you've really got to start somewhere. And when I look at growing a business and scaling it, one of the things that happens when scaling a business is you're actually able to bring costs down. But you got to start somewhere. Do, do, you, do you think that like in, in your vision of the future, is this all cheaper? Yeah. Really? Yeah. You did a food diary for Elle magazine. I did. Did you read it? I did. Did you like it? <laughs> you got pretty eviscerated online. Yeah. What was that like? I was I was surprised. But you know what I can say is I was having a moment of... Um, was having a moment of actually feeling irrelevant in the weeks leading up to it. Like, maybe somebody else could do my job. Am I even needed anymore? It seems like there's like a whole like wellness thing. And it's like, like the energy around it gets feels like super like overwhelming and desperate at times. And there are like wellness conventions and um, everyone can make their own smoothies and everybody has a blog about it and like blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, my God. Am I still doing the right thing? Am I helping? Or like, have I been part of a storm and now I can go move to India with my son and study Ayurvedic medicine and by the time I'm 40, I'll be a doctor. Like, that's where I was at. And then this thing happened and it actually fired me back into the driver's seat. And I was like, oh, okay. There's still a conversation that needs to happen and Even if people think you're silly? Yeah, I'm, uh, those are the people that I want to talk to. What, would, the, what do you say to them? The people that think I'm silly, the people that got really angry at me, like that's the conversation I want to be having. I've been seen through a very static lens, which is still lives that are taken in my home. And this is also something that's evolved over the last four years. So, you know, it's like really precious quotes from like a mom blog. And, you know, my, like, New Age Martha Stewart vibe in my home with my crystal. Hmm. That is one facet of a full being. And I am a full being. So I, I need you to walk me through some of the science. Because I have to say, I look at some of the things in here and they make tons of sense and comport with, you know, kind of common understanding of nutrition. Whole foods, whole plants, probiotics. And then there are other things where my eyebrows go up mm -hmm. and I look at, you know, what the Mayo Clinic has to say about adaptogens. Mm -hmm. And I have trouble with that. Can you walk me through how these things work? Adaptogens? Well, adaptogens, alkalizing, mineralization. I mean, a, a doctor would say it's pretty hard to change our blood pH. It, you know, hovers mm -hmm. around 7.4. And this is where I like to say, I'm not a doctor. I never said I was a doctor. <laughs> yeah, but you're selling not... stuff that says it's going to do something. Yes. And we actually have compliant labels. So the FDA has approved all of those. Um, so I'm saying things that I can legally say. Um, so 
I'm not going to sit here and go toe-to-toe with printouts that you have from doctors. What I am going to say, though, is that I have had a profound experience, and I have several years of blood tests where I have had Western doctors tell me that I have a chronic condition and I need to take synthetic drugs for the rest of my life to survive. And I had blood work that reflected that. And I took matters into my own hands and I used plants and herbs and I worked with some other herbalists and doctors and I completely changed my blood work. Hmm. And I have the tests that prove that. And I'm talking about major hormone function. I'm talking about not menstruating for years. And now I am. Hair that was falling out that is no longer falling out. Different brain chemistry, different hormone panels. So I'm not a doctor, but I've had that experience. And I stand with thousands of other people that have had that experience. And I'm actually not looking to like change FDA policy and convince people that want to be skeptics. You know, I'm like, I have a company and I'm just putting it out there, but I'm also not aggressively trying to go after the naysayers and, and go to war with someone who doesn't want to believe. I do like being in their consciousness though. I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy when people don't believe. And then, you know, there's like some funny parody of me that they come across and like again they kind of have to think about plant-based nutrition and they have to think about adaptogens and they have to think about their diet like I don't mind that but so you're okay with that kind of point of controversy being I guess a point of entry for other yeah yeah and that was really one of the things when I saw that was like oh okay I feel like I just got a little more engaged in my job again on why I should be here are there business people who you look at and say that's someone I want to be like that that is a a model or a person that is inspiring to me I was with Ariana Huffington last week and she's incredible one of the things that really struck me about her was her grace and her presence and as she's running this entire team and I was at the Thrive headquarters and like it's all happening and I know how much is going on for that woman but she was able to really collect herself and look in my eyes and be 100% present for the time that we spent together and then she's up and running and I really I saw her bring that to her own team I got to experience it and many others that were there so that was inspirational You know, no doubt, that there are people who are going to listen to this interview and say, okay, so we're talking to this woman who is, you know, building a a wellness business, who is in a trendy neighborhood in L.A., who has been the focus of beautiful photo shoots, and roll their eyes. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the people who roll their eyes? I love you. I do. (laughs) Hope you're listening. Hope you take it seriously. I really love you. And I get the eye rolling and I've been there too. And like, I get it. I can roll my eyes at myself at the same time. And if I could have three minutes to sit with somebody who's rolling their eyes right now, like, I think we could come out of that three minutes on like a positive note. Amanda Chantal Bacon, thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you.
next week on Marketplace Weekend. Allison Green from Ask a Manager is back with more advice on how to make the most of your work life. In past segments, she's talked to us about what not to wear in the office. Even if your office is business casual, you can't really wear shorts in a professional environment. It's interesting because fashion magazines love to show these sort of businessy looking shorts that are made out of suit-like material. Uh, I don't know who's wearing them. In, in real life, it's pants, a dress, or a skirt, but no shorts. What to do if you're overqualified for a job? It's definitely true that hiring managers worry about hiring someone who might be overqualified. The worry is that you'll be bored or you'll neglect the less glamorous pieces of the job and focus too much on things that interest you more but aren't so core to the role. And what you can and absolutely cannot eat at work. Those two, the fish and the popcorn in the microwave, are the ones that I hear people complain about the most too. The third one that I hear a lot about is the smell of microwaved broccoli. This time, Allison tackles your questions on how to quit your job the right way. Send us your questions. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. You can tweet us. We're at Marketplace WKND. Or leave a message on our voicemail, 1-800-648-5114. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. This show is produced by Peter Balanon-Rosen and Eliza Mills, with help this week from Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. And Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.